1: hello and welcome to this very latest episode of the energy insiders podcast my name is giles parkinson i'm the editor of renew economy and joining me in yet another fast moving week is david leach from itk david i trust you are well
2: uh giles yes i am well and uh, uh i trust all our listeners are uh, well as cop 27 is about to uh commence i can't say kick off really and Giles, it's a very special episode of Energy Insiders because we've got not one, but two interviews, guests to, uh, this, this time.
1: Yeah, look, we do. It's just a bit of a change of pace. Um, we've both come across some interesting little um, subjects which we've... Um, which we're going to get into later on. One on solar tiles, uh, making a comeback, and um, another one on uh, electric tuk-tuks, if, of all things, in Australia. Um, I went to an event in Sydney um, on Thursday, and it was interesting just to see this little big push for uh, the last mile delivery and electrifying that, and I'll explain why that's important later on. But look, let's just cover some of the big news happening. Um, look, you did mention the COP 27, just about to start in Egypt. I'm not too sure whether we're hoping for much. Um, there is an expectation that, um, well, Chris Bowen is going. I think there's a hope from the international community that Australia might agree to rejoin the Green Climate Fund, which Morrison yanked them out of um, during his sort of petulant um, um, era as, as Prime Minister. Um, it's probably probably the very least that Australia can do given that um, it won't be increasing its um, its, um, its own obligations under there, and we'll be arguing that it doesn't have to for, and, and, until the next five year settings are, are, um, are agreed. But I think all the analysis from all the international agencies, UNEP and the UN and, and the IPCC, just basically, well, they make the point that collectively all the, um, or well, the declared uh, policies by the Western world and the um, the non-Western world, for that matter, don't add up to nearly enough to keep global warming kept at two degrees, let alone 1.5.
2: Indeed, Giles, and that's no not news, unfortunately, to anyone, but neither should we uh, give up hope. That's the one thing I've learned from the climate scientists is that it's important not to give in to the, fa- uh, the fact that it's we're all doomed. Uh, there's still a lot that we can do, uh, and... Um, this year, of course, uh, COP27 has been overshadowed by events in Ukraine. And uh, we remain, and I think also, obviously heightened geopolitical concerns, can I use big words like geopolitical, uh, mean that... Uh,
1: Oh, look, I'm going to let you off just this once. Yes, yes. No, look, that's right. Yeah, But it was interesting, actually, the International Energy Agency, World Energy Outlook that came out last week, it actually sort of suggested that the whole Ukraine situation, the Russian gas situation may accelerate the switch to renewables, but it's going to be a mighty bumpy ride. And if we look at the pledges, um, there's just fierce resistance from the fossil fuel industry itself, particularly the oil and gas majors, because they're just not investing anywhere near what they pretend They are. In fact, I think it's just like an absolute sort of tiny fraction of their profits or even their R&D is actually going into um, clean energy.
2: Yes, so Russia's one thing and and the oil revenue in particular, but China's the other. And I guess that, you know, when you get down and read a lot of the detailed climate research, or at least the stuff I read, which is the sort of simple stuff, but the formal articles, you find they very often got joint authors from, say, China and and, and you know Australia, the United States, wherever, but um, it's just that spirit of cooperation is declining at the moment, and so, so everything's just there's more sand in the gears. But we shouldn't spend too long on that. Uh, the, the next thing I wanted to draw attention to, I suppose, was well, I think actually, even though the neo announcement, you could you could you can mention that, but I was caught by the AEMC's uh, decision to um, advocate for and facilitate the the is global. Australia-wide take-up of uh, smart meters, which I think is something that you know because of trying to say the consumer should lead it, has has held the sector transformation back, the digitalization of the sector uh, of electricity by five or seven years and so I'm very pleased to see that we're all going to have smart meters in the future. Uh, It would come anyway as solar penetration goes up enough but we'll be able to have much more uh, information and data and in general I think
1: that's a good thing. Well, I hope these smart meters are smarter than the ones they installed in Victoria um, under that sort of extensive campaign a few years ago, because they turned out to be not very smart at all. Um, well, not enabled to be smart enough, so that's um, no, an interesting one. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about the neo battery. Look, it's a fascinating deal. This is one with uh, BHP to s- supply. 70 megawatts of baseload power to the Olympic Dam mine, which is equivalent to really half of the Olympic Dam mine's uh, electricity needs. Um, The renewables contract is gonna come from wind energy from the Goida South wind farm, the first stage of which is under construction now. And that'll account for half that output and of course be balanced and supported by a new battery at Blythe, which is north of Adelaide. And this is gonna be about 300 megawatts and possibly 800 megawatt hours. Um, I try to find out some more information today, but um, um, they're being a bit elusive. But what's really interesting about this is just that the role that that battery will play mostly about load shifting, really, as far as I can tell. Uh, because um, the Gorda South Wind Farms probably um, um, is going to have a very, very high capacity factor. I mean, you know, talking to the neon people in the past, they've been very excited about this. This um, this this location, I think it's just more, probably one of the best places in Australia. I think it's got fantastic wind speeds, so great output and stuff like that. So, um, just just a huge advance um, to deliver a firm. I mean, you know, it, not just firm renewables. It's like baseload seventy megawatts here. You are constant, you know, uninterrupted. Um, quite an extraordinary um, way to sort of. Um, Think about um, new contracts, and uh, Neoen is suggesting that this could be a bit of a blueprint for the future. So this mixture of wind, solar, and batteries—quite um, remarkable. Uh,
2: indeed, and um, most of these uh, remote mining projects have a diesel backup, uh, as you know. I, but the thing I'd say about it is that um, neon has been good at getting executing things. They seem to have been skillful at getting PPAs done. I've said this before. Uh, skillful at getting their projects up and executed and, and in general, I regard them as the, uh, as the benchmark for most, uh, most other generators in Australia, whether government owned or gen tailors or whatever. Neo is the one that's, uh, that's the doing the job that most closely resembles what I would like to invest in. I think, uh, up to the point. Mm-hmm. So I can invest in it really.
1: Yeah, look, that's an interesting point. Actually, I probably agree with that. Um, it's interesting. Their strategy is basically to build and hold assets, so they're not sort of the type that was sort of like you know want to come in, get it, get approval or build something, and then flick it onto to some, somebody else. Um, you know, they're they're, they're long term investors, and, and I think that's probably sort of shaped you know the way they approach the projects. They've obviously been very very good at getting um, winning tenders and auctions and getting PPAs. Just to make a point about Olympic Dam, it actually is on the edge of the grid. It's connected to the grid, so it's not like an off grid application. I mean, they probably do have backup diesel. In case, um, so it's just fascinating to see all the mines actually going renewables. You know, we've had Oz um, Minerals, which is in fact a takeover target for BHP. They're going to build a bit one billion dollar nickel mine, uh, West Musgrave, out in the middle of nowhere, West Australia, Northern Territory, South Australian border, and looking to power it at least eighty uh, percent with renewables and batteries, and possibly up to one hundred percent. And that final twenty percent will really come down to. Their ability to manage the load and vary the load according to when the wind and the solar might be blowing and shining and the batteries sort of still running. So, um, really interesting stuff.
2: So, Giles, I, uh, you know um, what uh, is doing, and uh, our listeners, those of us who can remember as far back as last week or the week before the episode, will remember that we had authored uh, uh, on talking about uh, owning the. Assets as well. I thought it was one of the most interesting things they said because they want to own, you know, something like a third of the world's offshore wind capacity. That's going to require an enormous balance sheet. And the the one thing about it, and it's such an enormous contrast with the approach that the Gentiles, existing ones in Australia, have taken with regard to wind and solar. They've always been very happy to own coal and gas assets, but every time a wind or solar thing comes off, they want to, you know, in AGL's case, uh, put it off into something that they regard as their own, even if they only own 20% of it. Uh, and in Origin's case, they basically want to flick it as fast as they can. And in, same with Energy Australia. You know, at one stage, AGL was the biggest wind producer in the country or close to it. Um, Energy Australia had uh, had the raw um, reporties thing out of Tasmania. Uh, and Origin had uh, sites like Stockyard Hill. And yet, where are they now? They're all a big fat nowhere. And, of course, uh, at AGL, the argument rages on uh, as, as to what to do. I will make this one comment with these uh, five... Or four, or however many directors there are that are to be, uh, I do agree with the existing AGO management to the extent that if they, if, um, if Grok Canada Brooks was trying to get four or five directors uh, appointed for an 11% interest, that would be unusual, uh, and in fact it would be unfair. But uh, if all these people are in really independent, uh, and they've all said they are, <laughs> then 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 it's, it seems much more supportable as a good board, and I think it would be a much better board. But the honest, uh, you know, the um, somewhat uh, uh, analyst in me who always asks, why are people saying things as opposed to what they're saying, kind of asks yourself if, if, if Grok's recommending all these people for the, for the board, how independent can they really be? You know, it's just, it just doesn't seem to be completely possible, does it? What do you think?
1: Well, I think AGL have actually said that they accept the independence of these people, and looking at the caliber of these people, they don't seem to be sort of anyone, sort of patsies or sort of um, um, representatives. I just think that Grok's gone out and said, well, we actually need people who understand the energy transition, and um, these four people look like they know what they're talking about. Um, AGL sort of resisted, has sort of agreed with Mark Twiddell, who's the former Tesla Energy person uh one of the key players and things like the tesla big battery and stuff like that um but not with the others uh, i'm not too sure what they're scared of um but you know coming out this week in the Fin review and saying they're scared of blackouts or warning about blackouts if they sort of you know shifted from coal too quickly i'm not really too sure that that language is very helpful or even true um, i don't think it actually represents the position of canon brooks and um and their email and other people sort of you know suggesting that we need to get ready for a very quick um, transition. So um, I'm not too sure when it comes down to it whether they've actually learnt too much or absorbed too much. I think there's still many of them, too many of them, are locked in the past. And I think that's exactly Cannon Brooks's point, which is um, guys, get on with it. And um, it was fascinating to see his reaction. We'll get to this, this later. We we should have our first um, interview right now. But I just want to finish off with this observation from Mike Cannon Brooks. Didn't react to the AGL board threatening blackouts yesterday, but he did react with great vigour and enthusiasm. And Volvo announced um, it was going to sell only electric cars by 2026, four years against its global parent. And um, um, I think he said something like, fuck yeah, let's get on with it. And, um, you know, just the enthusiasm just will saying, yeah. We do can't. have to get on
2: with it. Uh, yes. Getting on with it's really important. Uh, I probably think all consultants are independent as well. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, um, solid,
1: solid tiles was an interesting thing. Um,
2: but, but I just want to say that getting, getting on with it, Giles, Getting on with it's not that easy, um, and it, 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 as we discussed last week, you know it's, it's an incredible amount to be done, and it is really hard, really, really hard to build all the renewable energy that. We-
1: Oh, of course, and and, and,
2: and, in the time available to build. I don't, I don't think I don't think I don't think
1: anyone I don't think anyone disputes that, David. Not impossible, just hard. I don't, I don't think anyone dis- disputes that, David. I just think it's a really good starting position to say let's give it a go rather than oh no, it's too bloody hard and we'll all you know the economy will crash and the lights will go out and and, and stuff like that. I just think we've had enough of that over the last ten years. It's starting to think about what is possible, and that's been really the most uplifting part of all the different announcements that we've heard over the last couple of years, and particularly the AEMO ISP. Yes, it's hard to implement. It's really, really hard. It requires a lot of cooperation, it requires a plan, but you know, let's give it a shot because we kind of need to. Anyway, let's move on to solar tiles. Um I, I
2: agree with that 1000%.
1: <laughs> let's get on with solar tiles. Uh interesting announcement um came out this week. Uh not something we normally talk about, but we talk about solar a lot and why not build it into the roofs? Um Nick Leeson um, from the Leeson Group, uh, made an interesting announcement, and we talked to him earlier this week. Peter Leeson, from uh, co founder or founder of uh, the Leeson Group, um, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
3: No it's nice to uh, be talking to you, uh, Giles and David.
1: Yeah, well look, um, Leeson chris has been involved in a lot of um, various developments, solar farms, and um, you've got a couple of ba- big battery storage projects, I think, which we might get round to talking about later. But um look, our interest this week, I think, has been sparked by the announcement of your solar tile product, and um, it's one of the quirks of Renew Economy. It's been going for about a decade now, but the third most Red story ever on um, on Energy Insiders was about the old Bristol solar tile, and that was almost a decade ago. And now it yeah. seems that you're back and working with Bristol. So t- tell us, tell us what's happened and what's new, and um, why should people get, should, should get excited about this again?
3: Absolutely, thanks. So look, I've been in building integrated PV for a bit over ten years through consultancy and installation role. So we've run a the you know solar sales and installation business and. Moved in that BIPV space about 10 years ago because of our construction knowledge and we were actually around when Bristol first launched their product. So we were their exclusive installer and we also provided them a bit of technical advice around that. So we've developed this product for about eight years now, um, reiterating, reiterating, just getting it perfect because obviously price has been a big barrier to market, trying to get that right, but also improving compliance with Australian standards, AS5033, uh, installation methods and uh, getting the the mass of the product outside so of the thermal mass so we get higher performance from the product itself so it's been a, a long journey to finally get this product commercially ready to go and Bristol come on board as our partner from a roofing perspective um, and we've got a pretty unique sales model to allow solar companies to actually sell and install vault uh, without the need for a roofing license because you can't install a solar roof tile unless you have a roofing license because it's part of the building fabric of the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, hence our partnership with Bristol which is part of the Brickworks Group, is that they provide the roof inside of the uh, sales and installation. So they will quote the roofs to the builders and they will be there for the installation of the roof, whilst our solar companies are also there installing solar, which is kind of a big barrier to market because traditionally roofing companies have tried to sell solar tiles um and whereas we're putting it in the hands of the experts which are our bold partners around australia to actually go and sell solar to the builders and then facilitate the sales and installation through bristol
1: just just one quick question though though i mean there's a huge amount of interest in this story when it first appeared you know a decade ago and and, and since then so obviously the demand is there um or are you assuming the demand is there? I mean, the Bristol product that obviously never re-rolled out in the one that we wrote about a decade ago obviously never rolled out in big numbers. Um, is, is, is there interest? Absolutely. I mean, Bristol
3: uh, rolled out you know, several hundred systems um, uh, all around the country and it was quite a popular product, but ultimately price uh, was a big barrier in the sales model. But you know, we've got the recent changes to the National Construction Code um, so there's a lot of interest in the products and then, you know, pretty much uh, using the any energy budget calculations uh, requirements of uh, space heating, hot water, uh, lighting loads and uh, pool and uh, spa loads. But the societal cost of energy, so it's carbon, um, weighted on carbon, so is gas and electricity in the home. Um, it means that pretty much every new home built is going to have solar. Now, that's 100,000 semi-detached dwellings every year. Uh, if we say a six kilowatt system on each home, that's a 600 megawatt market annually. Um, and so we think that the time is right and that is a real push for the market. But then we're also distributing globally to 85 different countries through Las Candela, uh, one of the, well, Spain's largest rooftop manufacturer, but also one of the world's largest manufacturing clients of tiles. So uh, we're, we're doing our first install over in Barcelona in a few weeks' time which is you know, sort of uh, having multiple markets that we can, can work in is also going to help launch the product um, scale manufacturing and get the cost down of the product.
2: So, Peter, I, I, I can recall going to visit the Boral uh, solar roof tile factory in, uh, outside of Los Angeles in about 2012. And, and you've seen CSR have a go, the two big uh, roof tile companies in Australia, um, yeah, a, 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 and the roofing market is interesting. But just to, uh, could, in in thirty seconds, what's the what's what's the pitch to the customer here?
3: Right, we've got the highest efficiency solar tile in the world at nineteen point five uh, percent, highest wattage, and we're completely compliant with all Australian standards. We also outperform a lot of them because we've reduced our thermal mass significantly. So aside from that technical unique attributes in this you know very strong sales model in having solar companies selling solar. Um, We're also what we believe to be the lowest cost. So for a five kilowatt system, we're about $12,000, which is about half the cost of most other products on the market in Australia, and a quarter of the cost of the Tesla roof. So we we feel that the timing and the product is right uh, to launch is pretty hard.
2: So price is, is a feature, um, but a lot of what it sells in roofing is not just price, it's about the look. And the roof is one of the most important parts of the curb appeal of a house. Yeah. And uh, what would you say about this product as compared to either a metal roof with solar on it, or a concrete tile with conventional panels on it, or a, or, or, or a um, clay tile, you know? Uh, and in Spain it would be clay tiles, and if you ever went to the United States it would be asphalt shingles. Um, so yes. What, talk, talk to me about the curb appeal.
3: Yeah, so there's there's a few different options for solar products on a roof. Obviously you've got your standard panels bolted onto a colour bond steel roof or or a tile um, roof. Uh, then you've got your sort of inline, what they call it, which is basically just a, a flashing section that sits within the roof and it lowers the modules down to the same height as the tiles or the, the top of the colour bond. And then you've got your integrated options where we would, you know, compared to those but we're using MWT cells so they've got no front bus bars so you can't see the silver lines on the front of them and we're also using um, aluminium frames anodized aluminium frames so it's reduction in colour fade so it blends really well into the roof structure so you don't you can't really see the cells as you can jump online and actually look at our product and our photos it's really clean without those bus bars so it does improve that curb appeal, and we know that a lot of homes don't go solar on their tile roofs because of the look of it. Obviously, a flat roof it doesn't matter. So yes, curb appeal is important, and that's one of the benefits of why we think the products can scale. And, and the
2: overall product then is a, is a, is really for the clay tile, uh, or, or or the um, or sorry, the concrete tile market, or the and the clay tile market rather than the metal roofing market. Is is it?
3: Yeah. Absolutely. So we we won't be developing any um, metal roofing products for about four to five years until we start to see cells printed. That's when we believe that yeah you know, you, you'll be able to commercialise the, the the steel roofing products. Um, but we we have a product uh, that suits the. So, sorry, we have a product that suits both terracotta and concrete flat roof tiles.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, flat roof tiles, yes, uh, uh, whereas I think in Spain we'll probably find there's a lot of those curvy, you know, Mexican Hacienda styles, but let's not worry about that. Um, uh, and just talk to me about the economics again. You, you say the product is, is is for six kilowatts, but I think about roofing in terms of, uh, you know, uh, a, a 60 or 70 or $100 a square metre, I suppose it might be this year. Yeah. Uh, installed and you know solar panels are about like uh, you know a dollar a watt so six kilowatts is six thousand installed more or less uh and the roof itself might be thirty or forty or fifty thousand so uh you know what's from from the cost perspective what what's the consumer see
3: okay so your let's say your average roof is about 280 square meters your standard sort of flat or or concrete roof tile uh, is going to cost you between fifteen to twenty thousand dollars to roof that home um let's just, just some average numbers and then if you were to go your sort of terracotta high-end uh you know spanish-made roof tile you might be looking between 25 uh 30 thousand dollars maybe slightly above so the roofing component you know is quoted by obviously the roofing company and that's your price point point. and then if you look at obviously like a, as I said before a five kilowatt system being about twelve thousand dollars after STCs um your entire you know roof and Solar tile system installed for five kilowatts. You know, might start at about twenty, twenty-two thousand dollars. $22,000, sorry, uh twenty-five to twenty-seven thousand dollars, depending on obviously the size of the roof. Size of the roof, but when you're building that new home, obviously you you need to have a roof on that home. Hence the cost. Uh, that cost is calculated there. Yeah.
2: So yeah. So compared to the cost of doing the roof and the solar, you, you're going to be saving. A, 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 so getting a better looking property and, and, and for, for not that much more, a few thousand more than the, or sorry, the the combined cost will be less than the cost of the roof and the solar together for a new
0: roof.
3: Yeah, the, the combined cost of the solar and the roof will be more than a uh, standard roof, um, but it won't be, you know, it won't be much more than a standard roof and a, and a standard sort of solar panel system. Yeah, your premium end phase sun power type system for a five kilo might be about the same, about twelve thousand dollars. Whereas you know your sort of cheaper end products might be around six or seven thousand dollars. So um, you know you, you're probably looking at an increased cost of about uh, five thousand dollars for a far more premium product, which is the equivalent of a, a high end solar power system.
2: And uh... Just talk to me, You, you get. To, uh, I, so we'll cover this elsewhere, but the solar panels are obviously uh, so you've got two separate installations. That's what you, is that what you're saying? The roofing uh, Bristol does the approvals of, and essentially sells to the volume home builder or whoever it is. Uh, they sell the product and then they do their part of the roofing and you come along and do the solar part. Is that, is that correct?
3: Yeah, well, the Wave Vault's position is a manufacturer and distributor of the Volt Solar Tile. And we're partnering with 100 solar companies around Australia who will go and sell vault solar tile systems to the builders. So they'll just have that as part of their product offering to offer standard panels and vault solar tiles. But where Bristol come into it is they quote the roof. So when our vault partners quote the solar tile, uh, the vault solar tile to the builder, they will upload the drawings to our portal. That'll send it across to Bristile. Bristol will quote. The, the roof to the builder. Then on the day of installation, you've just got two trades there. It's two separate contracts to the builder, but ultimately Bruce Tile are installing the roof, and then our, our uh, Vault partners are installing Vault Solar Tile, just as a standard, uh, a standard solar system, except it takes a lot less time as there's no mounting system, no grinding tiles, anything like that.
2: Yep, that's good. Uh, I think that's pretty much all the questions I I mean you could spend a a lot more time obviously talking about this but and I mean have you how many how many sales have you got any idea of how many you plan to sell over the next 12 months
3: yeah look so we're forecasting in Australia and internationally about 6.6 megawatts next year um, so it's, it's going to be a good start and then about 25 megawatts uh, in 2024, scaling up to about 100 megawatts in 2025. But part of our key strategy is we want to bring manufacturing to Australia. So late next year, we're going to be making the extrusion frames, which are very complicated. So the extrusions are about 50% of the product mass and also about 50% of the cost because um, they're very complicated cuts in the assembly process. So we're going to bring that on shore and start making the extrusions and assembling the products here late next year. And then we're going to move to full scale manufacturing uh, by early 2025. So we're going to have a plant similar to Tindo's uh, with our ambition is to try and get vertical integration of solar module manufacturing in Australia through partnerships. So, you know, working with with other companies like uh, Tindo or Sundrive or FFI, whoever might be looking to manufacture silicon cells here in Australia, and working on manufacturing of ingots, uh, you know, wafers themselves.
2: That's great because uh, we do a lot of the R&D, of course, for solar here. I, I think we don't get the credit for, um, or need to keep reminding myself how much work. We work on the actual design of solar cells through the stuff that people like Martin Green yeah. and all the people at Union New South Wales do. But of course, we don't do the manufacturing here because we don't have the volumes. But on the other hand, I would say that Australians, uh, home builders, and the detached home market, and solar on all the roofs and stuff, we we know it, we do a much better job of rooftop solar installation costs than the United States, where last time I looked, we were about half uh, half the cost of the United Absolutely. States in dollars per watt. So uh, I think yeah. it's, uh, I, that's I think the opportunity to manufacture that sort of product in Australia uh, seems interesting to me because it seems only a natural extension, no matter how hard manufacturing is. got a lot of the bits and pieces for it for right here don't don't we
3: yeah no exactly and and look there there are not many manufacturers of uh solar products in australia that could export to the world and we're already showing that we can sell globally because we've made sales internationally already uh so yeah, we're a big believer because of our unique product holding the ip here and advanced manufacturing we can actually bring the manufacturing onshore and start exporting You know, and forecasting even to export 100 megawatts um, out of Australia in 2025 is a really large ambition, Um, but we we think we can achieve it. Uh, We've obviously closed significantly large markets for our solar farm business. So yeah, we're quite excited.
2: it, It amazed me when I used to cover building materials that from time to time you could actually even export bricks. Uh, to places from West Australia to Singapore and stuff like that, and I'm sure if you can export bricks, you can export uh, solar rooftop roof tiles. Uh, Pete, I think Absolutely. that pretty much covers all the stuff I I wanted to talk about. Um, Giles, I'm back back to you.
1: Thanks, David. Look, Pete. Um... Yeah, look, I just wanted to touch very briefly on the big battery project that you've got, um, you're trying to develop in Melbourne. Um, it's about 400 megawatts. I'm not too sure what the latest hours of storage it is that you're looking at, possibly two hours, maybe more. Can you just give us a bit of an update where that is and just some of the challenges and opportunities that you see in the battery storage market right now? Yeah, absolutely. So
3: it's it's an 1100 hectare site, um, just north of Melbourne, uh, 440 megawatt DC of panels, and then a 400 megawatt 200 two hour battery so 800 megawatt hours so it's a significantly large project um yeah we're working through we've finalized pretty much most of the planning process and should have our permits very very soon um and we're in the you know the midst of grid studies and as you know it get quite complicated so we've selected oems um and advancing our way through there so the you know obviously from a financial modeling perspective and markets it, it is challenging with all the uh, coal generation coming offline uh every second week we get a new price forecast of, of what you know 2030 2035 2040 looks like in arbitrage and fcas uh, but yeah we're, we're moving forward pretty quickly and we're hoping to get um to uh you know financial close by the end of next year or, or early in uh 2024 q1 2024 and start starting construction
1: yeah, is that something that you need, like the, the Victorian state storage target, or will you be just doing bilateral deals with um, potential customers um, or we'll just go merchant?
3: Yeah, look, I, I don't think merchant for a project that size is going to be viable. Obviously, we, we've got a huge number of smaller projects, you know, six and a half megawatt uh, sub five projects with 11 megawatt hour buses, which were in our BNRG lease and JV um where we're you know pushing forward and you can take a lot of merchant risks on those ones but a project of this size will need to have you know at least a significant portion of offtake okay
1: well good luck with those and um and um good luck with the solar tires and uh, thanks for joining the um, energy insiders podcast absolutely
3: thanks for your time
2: Pete, hey, thanks very much i, I it's I, I really hope you have every success so I, I, it's great to talk building materials and solar at the same time thanks david thanks for your time i appreciate
3: it
1: and that was uh, Nick Leeson from uh, the Leeson Group. Um, Nick's also going to be featuring in a much longer conversation with Nigel Morris on the Great Solar Business Podcast. So um, if you've got an interesting taste in that one and want to learn more, uh, Nigel I'm, I'm sure has gone into much more detail um, with, um, with, with Peter about, um, about the solar tile industry. Um, David, what was your big take out um, from that interview?
2: Um, Giles, my take out is it's very well done to, to give it a go. Uh, having a partner like uh, Bristol, <laughs> even if they are uh, related uh, to what in all um, is, is, is a great thing and I it succeeds. Um, but history has shown it's hard to make solar tiles successful as compared to keeping the, the tile and, and the solar panel separate. So I really hope it succeeds, and that's why I'm so interested to talk to Peter. But, but I don't think it's an easy journey.
1: No, it's not an easy journey. Look, um, P- uh, David, we're actually both travelling um, this week, and I I, I I fear for your connection. So we're going to move very quickly on to our next interview. And um, I'm going to introduce this one because um, on Thursday in Sydney, it was fascinating to see Ikea, the big retail uh, retailer that everyone knows about, um, uh, ANC, which is quite a big logistics group, which specialises in sort of last mile um, deliveries, which is essentially from the distribution centre to the um, to the customer and this is really fascinating part um, of the electrification of, of, of road transport. everyone thought um, I was talking to Bayard Jafari um, at the at, at the meeting and he was sort of making the observation that people thought that long-haul transport you know from point A to point B that will be the first to electrify because you can work out where two things are put some storage in or some recharging or whatever it is you need and, and, and that'll do. What's actually happened, in, particularly in Europe, is, that, is the last mile deliveries, you know, the things are scattered everywhere, things going everywhere, different houses, which is actually um, transitioning first. There's a couple of reasons for this. One, the distances uh, are not huge. Um, two, um, the weights are not huge, big either. Three, you're going into built-up areas, you're going into residential areas, you're going into cities, and people just hate the bloody noise now and the smell and the pollution of diesel and petrol trucks. So a lot of them are banned at night time because they make too much noise and too much smell. Um, and basically the trucking industry is affirming the belief, or they understand, that within a few years these local governments are going to say, no, sorry, you can't come in at all. Bring something electric in by all means, but you're not bringing diesel into these built-up areas, into these residential areas anymore. So think of something else. And that's why that's transitioning so quickly. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Australia. So ACN, they've got 10 electric delivery trucks at the moment, they want to sort of rapidly increase that now. They even brought, they're even bringing in some electric tuk-tuks. Now, these are the things that we see in Southeast Asia everywhere. Um, this is electric. I can't quite imagine them on the Sydney roads, but apparently that's the plan. It's going to work out of the Tempe um, resort, uh, sorry, Tempe Centre from IKEA. In Sydney, um, they're talking about having dozens or even hundreds or even thousands of these things. So just imagine the city in the future, which basically doesn't have big trucks and big cars and petrol and things, You just lots of little sort of smaller vehicles running around the place. Anyway, I spoke to Finland Dunleavy, um, who's this sort of sustainability driver from AC, A- ANC, sorry. and um, I started by asking him, um, you know, <laughs> really, it's an electric tuk-tuk? Why? Anyway, here's the conversation. Finn Dunleavy, the sustainability lead for AMC, and person, you know, driving the electrification, I guess, of the um, ANC fleet. That would be me, yes, that correct. That would be you, yeah. I mean, um, how hard is that?
4: <laughs> um, fortunately, not very hard. Um, there are natural barriers to transitioning to EV, which all business owners in this country will, will know about. Costs, charging infrastructure. <coughs> Apologies. Um, but uh, with, with, with new management in our business, new CEO, great strong direction, real commitment from the business across the board, not to just be tokenistic and transfer or greenwash as everyone's saying now. It's not about just changing the vehicles, it's about doing all the supporting infrastructure and moves to make it truly sustainable.
1: T- Tuktuks, though, seems like a bit of an out there idea for, for Australian roads, Why, well, what made you think of that?
4: Well, yes, for Australian roads, but again, they, they are working everywhere else around the world. The company that we brought these in from uh, already have them on the road in nine different countries. They have about 17,000 of them on the road globally. Um, they've done over 20 million Ks. For us, it's a proven entity. Um, so. I guess we're just trying to catch up to what some of our brothers and sisters are doing in other parts of the world, really. You know? yeah. How hard has it been to get them homologised and sort of
1: accepted for Australian roads? I mean, do world drivers have to wear a helmet, for instance?
4: Uh, well, they do. Um, different laws, different states. Yes. Um, in Queensland, uh, South Australia and WA, you can drive them on a car licence without a helmet. Mm-hmm. In Victoria and New South Wales, you need a bike licence and have the helmet. <laughs> we are taking a position that it will require a bike licence and a helmet regardless of state that's just an internal policy for safety um but uh yeah it's it's been interesting so far but the homologation process we're still going through but we we can't see any significant hurdles the majority of the parts used in the took that we're talking about are actually already compliant here in australia in other bikes yeah wheels brakes things like that so what are the costs of these things and what are the savings um, costs we will know once we start moving into volume, um, but the reality is we're probably looking around that 15000 thousand dollar mark per took in an electric format, plus an additional battery on top of that. So let's say you know eighteen thousand um, dollars, comparatively to our delivery vans in an EV format, which are like a hundred thousand plus, and our trucks which are two hundred and fifty thousand plus. They do represent great value. Sure, they've got a good payload. They'll work well in a metro area, but we, we see them as a genuine game changer in the fast, agile metro freight movement. So they can do
1: 50 kilometres an hour. They can carry around half a tonne, 500 Correct, kilos. About 500 kilos,
4: yep. Yeah. Uh, payload, uh, 100K range, a 9 kilowatt battery. The battery in these TUCs is actually swappable. You can swap the battery in and out in about two minutes flat. Um, so we see the opportunity to sort of base these at a metro cross dock or a micro hub working within a metro area going out and doing runs of 30 40 drops in a run coming back swapping a battery over reloading and going back out again drivers or riders doing one or two shifts like that a day swapping over and then for a fresh driver doing that into the evening as well so for productivity we really look to sweat the asset and and really do some significant volume with them I've just been to the um, to
1: Europe and uh, the biggest trucking show there, and it was just fascinating to see all the new electric vans being rolled out in the last mile deliveries. And also fascinating to see how local communities and politicians are just basically sick of having diesel um, sort of spread around their communities. And most of these trucking companies and logistic companies are now working on the assumption that they're not going to be able to bring fossil fuel vehicles into these built-up areas in some communities within a few years. I mean, do you expect to see that happening in Australia, or is is that the thing that's sort of driving you, or you sort of got 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 sort of lost? your goals about just the green transition?
4: Listen, I, I absolutely see it happening. When it will happen, I, I can't tell you, but uh, will it? Yeah, for sure. Will the sun come up tomorrow? Yes. Um, so it, it will happen, it's just it is a matter of when. Um, we have some lofty aspirations. We, we At ANC, we really want to try and, and, and do our best to become a leader in this green last mile delivery space, um, and that's a genuine leader, not again just tokenistic or greenwashing Um, there is a genuine commitment not only to get the the vehicles on the road in an EV format but then the supporting infrastructure and then what additional services can we change or challenge or introduce to support greater sustainability goals so those are all part of the mandate of what we're looking to do. Well good on you Finn and um, thank you very much for joining us. No thank you appreciate the chat.
1: And that was uh, Finn Dunleavy from um, ANC, um, after announcing that sort of deal between ANC, um, IKEA, and the uh, leasing firm Oryx. Um, look, fascinating to see that happening in the inner cities. I think they're right that it's actually probably going to happen there um, as quickly or even more quickly than it does on the open road, given the distances um, in Australia. Um, interesting to see Volvo cars, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, um, going fully electric by 2026, even beating its parent company in Europe. So. Um, Things on a certain levels, David, are changing quite quickly.
2: Yeah, indeed, Giles. Um, uh, you know, I, I years and years and years ago I went to Shanghai on a business trip, and then when we were um, done lead asset batteries, little electric motorcycles and things like that. Uh, I was a toll road analyst once as well and listening to the uh, to talk about toll roads, I just on the same road as big semi trailers. And yet, we all need uh, trucks and transports and logistics. So, uh, indeed, Uber drivers, anyone who drives, the more kilometres you drive, the more advantage an electric has, at least in annual running costs. Uh, and so, these are all uh, obvious areas to chip away at.
1: Yeah, and one of the interesting things is, and you see them from truck drivers, we saw it in truck drivers in Sweden and Germany where we visited um, last month, and it was the same thing talking to the truck drivers working with these electric vans here um, is that once you drive an electric van, you do not want to go back to a uh, petrol or a diesel van. Um, so that pretty much locks in that. Look I think that's going to be enough of this week, um, I feel that we're losing you David in the connection so we're going to sort of wrap up here. I'd just like to um, thank um, both our guests today, I'd like to thank David, I'd like to thank our sponsors of course Pylon and Evergen, thanks for all the listeners out there. Uh, look forward to your feedback and to your response. Also, to give ourselves a bit of a pat on the back because we did pass more than two million listens um, um, a couple of weeks ago. That's all aggregate since we've been doing this for um, almost four years, and um, the rate is actually increasing every year. So it's really gratifying. We we'll probably get to one million listens by the end of this year, just in the calendar year. And um, thanks for all the people for tuning in. We really appreciate it, and it's um, it's um, it's really heartening To um, to to see the response, and um, yeah, that's fantastic, and thanks, of course, to our, um, uh, our sponsors and everyone listening. Anyway, that's it for now. We'll be back again next week. Bye for now.
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen